Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Legal Update on the Notice to Appear. Today, we welcome Victoria Nielsen, who is the Defending Vulnerable Populations Program Managing Attorney for the Catholic Legal Immigration Network Incorporated, or CLINIC. Our goal today is to understand the Notice to Appear rules and opportunities for best practices in light of recent board, circuit, and Supreme Court decisions. Welcome, Vicki. Uh, hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Sure. Um, so why don't we start with some information about you, your background, and your work? Sure. Um, so as as you said in your introduction, I'm working at the Defending Vulnerable Populations Program at uh, Clinic. Uh, this is a special program that started a couple of years ago, basically, in response to the ramped-up enforcement and anti-immigrant policies of the Trump administration, so we provide more support on removal, defense, and litigation, and asylum, and other more complex issues. Um, before I started at clinic, I've had sort of a varied career in immigration. I was the legal director at Immigrant Justice Corps, a legal fellowship program. Um, I worked briefly at USCIS and the Refugee and Asylum Law Division. I've been at Immigration Equality, which focuses on LGBT immigration issues, and been at the HIV Law Project, which provides more uh, general legal services to people living with HIV. Thanks. Well, we're happy to have your expertise today. And let's jump in with an overview on the notice to appear, why it's on our mind these days and in the news. Sure. Um, so the notice to appear is the document that begins removal proceedings against non-citizens. Um, it's served by the Department of Homeland Security, which is the prosecuting agency in these cases, and then ultimately it's filed with the Immigration Court, which is under a different agency, the Department of, of Justice. Um, over the course of the last several years, the vast majority, in fact, nearly 100% by DHS's admission of notices to appear have not included the time and date of the hearing. And a high percentage of them also don't include the court address or what court it's going to be filed in. Um, as a result, there's been substantial litigation about whether or not uh, a notice to appear that doesn't include this essential information um, satisfies the requirements under the Immigration and Nationality Act, and if it doesn't satisfy the requirements, then what does that mean in in the non-citizens' uh, removal proceedings? Hmm. And can you expand a little bit more on what the INA requirements are? Um, sure. So the Immigration and Nationality Act um, under Section 239 um, lays out what needs to be in a notice to appear, and it's most of it is substantive, you know, the nature of the proceedings, the legal authority under which they're brought, the acts or conduct. Uh, alleged to be in violation of the law, the charges against the non-citizen, um, that the non-citizen may be represented by counsel, um, that the non-citizen is required to update his or her address, 
and then at uh, 239A1G that the time and place at which the proceedings uh, will be held are supposed to be in the notice to appear. Great. And what has been the you know past uh, practice for uh, folks in immigration court when looking at these notices to appear? Yeah, so going back in time to before the changes in the immigration law in 1996, it actually was um, statutorily a two-step process where um, the person would get the order to show cause first and then, and then the notice from the court. When the INA was revised in 1996, um, Congress put sort of it reduced it to a single document called a notice to appeal, which is supposed to have all of this information in it. Um, and you know, as I as I said before, over the past several years, rather than um, putting the information in the notice to appear, almost all non-citizens get a document that says, you know, date and time to be determined, and then possibly will also say location to be determined. Um, I mean, the reason that this, well, <laughs> one reason that this matters is just that there's often a great deal of confusion for non-citizens, particularly those who are more recent arrivals who generally don't speak English, may have limited literacy levels, and, you know, they're given sort of a, you know, an important legal document that says you have to go to court, but then it doesn't say where and when they have to go to court. So I think there are real serious due process implications if you're um, serving somebody something that doesn't give them kind of the most important um, information that they need to have. Um, you know, as part of the you know, the, the litigation we're going to talk about in a moment, the Supreme Court decision from last year, Pereira v. Sessions, um, the government said that basically the, those requirements that I read off before under um, 239A1 as to what's supposed to be in a notice to appear, much of that is sort of boilerplate, but the date and time um, isn't boilerplate, obviously, because it's going to, to vary from each case to each case. Mm. Yeah, can you explain more then about the Pereira v. Sessions case and its implications? Um, one way that a non-citizen can get um, lawful status in the United States is as a defense to removal proceedings uh, if the person qualifies for something called cancellation of removal. In order to qualify for cancellation of removal, the person must show, if it's non-LPR cancellation, that, that he or she's been in the United States for for 10 years, has been a person of good moral character, um, hasn't committed certain crimes, and that his or her removal would result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to a qualifying U.S. citizen or green card holding relative. All of that is to say it's meant to be a defense for people with long-term ties to the United States uh, where citizens or green card holders would, would suffer if the person is removed. One section of the cancellation of removal law says that those 10 years physical presence that the person is required to have are cut off the moment that the person is served with a notice to appear. It's also 
cut off at the moment that a person uh, commits crimes that would uh, that would knock them out of the cancellation of removal eligibility. But what was at issue in the in the Pereira case was what's called the stop time rule. Um, you know, at what point does being served with a notice to appear um, cut off the the accrual of the 10 years physical presence. Um, So prior to this decision before the Supreme Court, there have been a bunch of litigation on the issue. So, you know, we were talking before about what is it exactly that has been happening to initiate proceedings. So non-citizens have been receiving these notices to appear that don't have the time and date of the hearing. And then at some point in the future, the immigration court mails out something called a notice of hearing, which doesn't contain all of the charges, but just says, you know, this is the date and time um, to appear in immigration court. And so there's been substantial litigation about whether the notice of hearing, you know, quote unquote, completes the notice to appear. Um, And before the Pereira decision, Um, the Board of Immigration Appeals had found not only that the notice of hearing um, was sufficient to sort of be a two-step process to uh, meet the stop-time rule, but that that the notice of hearing made the NTA itself stop time. So all of that background, which is a bit confusing. So at the, the Supreme Court, in the case of Pereira, he had received a notice to appear that didn't have the information about the, the date and time of the hearing. He did appropriately and properly give DHS uh, the address information, um, and then they sent a notice of hearing to the wrong address. So he essentially never received um, information about when and where his court date was. Um, he later was seeking uh, cancellation of removal, and the and the government was arguing that he had not, you know, that the notice to appear um, did cut off his ten years presence in the United States. And an unusually um, uh, cohesive Supreme Court decision, um, Justice Sotomayor, writing for an eight-one majority, said, you know, no, this is um, a clear statutory um, analysis case, the INA clearly says that the the stop time rule applies when a person is served with a notice to appear, and then that section of the INA relates back to Section 239, which lays out explicitly the exact information that has to be in the notice to appear, and one of those uh, most significant pieces of information is the date and time uh, uh, and place of, of where the hearing will be. So very clear, unambiguous language from Pereira, and, and because they were looking at the statute, um, the Supreme Court said we don't need to give Chevron deference to the BIA's earlier interpretation here. Because the language in Pereira is so um, so broad, you know, saying a notice to appear that doesn't give notice of where and when to appear is not a notice to appear at all, um, advocates were immediately wondering how far the Supreme Court intended that decision to go, and people started making 
um, motions to terminate based on that broad language of Pereira. So last summer there were there was sort of a flurry of motions to terminate, saying, "Well, you know, my client received a notice to appear that was, you know, quote unquote, not a notice to appear at all under Pereira, and therefore the court never obtained jurisdiction over over the case." Um, so the Supreme Court decision Pereira came out in in June of last year. We're coming up on the anniversary of that decision, and within two months, the Board of Immigration Appeals had issued matter of Bermuda's Cota, um, which said no. You know, basically the board stepped in to kind of put an end to this flurry of motions to terminate, some of which were being granted and some of which were not. Um, and, uh, you know, the board instead said that, that there is no jurisdictional issue uh, implicated by Pereira. Thanks. So let's talk about the more recent um, Board of Immigration Appeals and, ni- and the Ninth Circuit decision and what they do and do not say, um, as well as the jurisdictional impact. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, essentially, after this, after the Pereira decision last summer, there have been kind of three sub-issues that have been raised uh, but not answered, I would say, by the Pereira decision. One is this, you know, kind of broadest question question of whether facially insufficient notices to appear grant jurisdiction to the immigration court. Two is, you know, kind of related to that. If if the NTA is not does not require have the required information, uh, and then the uh, non citizen doesn't appear in court, does that mean that they should be um, able to move to reopen an in absentia removal order based on the fact that the NTA didn't ever tell them when and where to appear? And then, you know, more narrowly, but sort of where this all started, um, what effect does the Pereira decision have on the stop time rule for cancellation of removal? So in terms of the um, jurisdictional question, right? So, so last summer in August, the Board of Immigration Appeals in Bermuda's Cota, you know, in no uncertain terms, said, you know, the Pereira decision used the word, you know, this is a narrow issue. If the intention of the Supreme Court had been to um, to say that they never had jurisdiction over the case then they would have said that, and instead they remanded the case um, for further proceedings. So if the Supreme Court had thought there was no jurisdiction, then why would they have remanded the case? So that was sort of the reasoning in Bermuda's Cota. And since then, there have been um, several circuit court decisions that have um, either explicitly upheld Bermuda's Cota or reached uh, sort of similar conclusions on their own on the jurisdictional issue. Um, the Ninth Circuit in um, uh, Car- Caringithi, um the Second Circuit in, um, uh, sorry, uh, Benegas Gomez, the Sixth Circuit in Hernandez Perez versus Whitaker. Um, so basically, there have been you know several circuit court decisions saying, yeah, the language here does seem broad in Pereira. But, I mean, basically the implications of saying that none of these notices to appear 
um, vested the court with jurisdiction would be enormous with, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of cases potentially having to be re-NTA'd um, and, and reheard. I'll get it to a moment. In a moment, I'll get to sort of the most recent decision, which, you know, puts a little bit of a, of a uh, bite back into the argument that maybe there is a jurisdictional issue. Um, so the BIA in May has issued, in May of 2019, has issued three decisions um, interpreting Pereira v. Sessions. Two of the decisions, um, matter of Miranda and matter of Pena, deal specifically with in absentia removal orders. And basically, they're building on the Bermuda's Cota's, uh, sorry, Bermuda's Cota decision and saying, you know, it's apples and oranges if you're looking at the cancellation of removal section of the INA versus the section that says what must be included in the notice to appear. And there's nothing in the INA um, that requires uh, the notice to appear to give the date and time um, if, if in order to issue an in absentia order. So basically, those two decisions, you know, said, again, Pereira should be read narrowly. It doesn't affect sort of any area of law other than um, the stop time rule that was narrowly addressed in the decision. And uh, there have been several circuit court decisions that have also um, dealt with in absentia removal orders since Pereira, and none of them has um, has taken a broad view of vacating or uh, rescinding and reopening in absentia orders based on the lack of um, required information in the notice to appear. Um, so the other um, BIA decision that has come out on May 1st of this year, matter of Mendoza-Hernandez, addresses sort of most directly um, the the same issue that was in Pereira v. Sessions. It's a case that deals with the the stop time rule in cancellation of removal. Um, And so the question uh, there, um, well, actually, one thing that's that's interesting about that case is that it's an, an unbank un- decision by the Board of Immigration Appeals. So most BIA decisions are, uh, if they're presidential, are a three-member panel. Um, this was a decision where the entire um, BIA weighed in, and in a closely split decision, um, it, issued a, an opinion which, you know, in my opinion, um, seems to directly contradict um, the holding in, in Pereira v. Sessions. So basically the issue in in uh, Mendoza is, again, when does, when does time stop? So before Pereira v. Sessions, um, the BIA had said, if there's a notice to appear on one date that's defective, and then there's a notice of hearing at some later date, time still stopped the date of the notice to appear, like it uh, basically the notice of hearing relates back and therefore sort of magically cures the notice to appear. In Mendoza-Hernandez, the board took a slightly narrower view and in interpreting Pereira v. Sessions and said, oh, okay, 
clearly we can't we can't rely on the date of that notice to appear if it was defective because the Supreme Court said that we can't. But we're going to look at the sort of overall intent of the Supreme Court decision, which is to make sure that the non-citizen actually knows where and when to go to court. So if the notice of hearing gives them that information, then those two documents taken together have everything that Section 239 of the INA require, and therefore time stops on the date of the notice of hearing. So it's still not following Pereira in, in finding that the notice to appear has to have all of this information, but instead it's sort of going out on its own and saying, all right, as long as the person eventually has everything they need, then we'll stop time on the date that the document, the combined documents um, gave the, the non-citizen the notice. Um, the uh, the dissenters in this case, which is uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, right, so nine went uh, in the majority and six went in the dissent, um, the dissenters said, no, like, you you have to follow the clear language of, of Pereira is that the notice to appear stops time, and the notice to appear must contain the statutorily required, um, uh, you know, elements. Um, so it was a pr- very strongly worded dissent, which interestingly was um, signed off on by the same members who had written the Bermuda's Cota decision. So while these board members were not willing to uh, agree that, that there was a jurisdictional issue, they very strongly feel that Pereira v. Sessions is a, a straightforward decision and that the result of that decision at the you know narrow intersection of the stop time rule and the notice to appear requirements is uh, that an NTA must have this information in order to stop time and that it is the NTA and only the NTA um, that can stop time for cancellation purposes. Um, so uh, that decision was was issued on on May first, so you know less than six weeks ago, and then. Um, almost immediately following that decision, uh, the Ninth Circuit weighed in on on the same issue in the case of um, Lopez v. Barr, um, that case which was dated May 22nd, so basically three weeks after the BIA decision, um, the same issue um, came before or was decided uh, by the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit explicitly rejected the BIA's reasoning in, in Mendoza, you know, saying, you know, the, the Pereira decision couldn't, you know, couldn't be clearer, um, and that in this narrow um, intersection, clearly if the NTA is defective, um, it, the notice of hearing doesn't stop stop time. Um, so what, is, what does that mean? Um, so, you know, in the Ninth Circuit, at least, um, I think that means that anyone who has not been served with a notice to appear that includes the um, the date, time, and place of the hearing, um, time has not stopped for them. So conceivably, there are people, um, you know, who had old NTAs where there, you know, where time 
should not have stopped. So that this might present an opportunity for people to file um, motions to reopen if if they're now eligible for cancellation of removal where they weren't previously. Um, and, you know, essentially the, the notice of hearing is not um, going to cure the defective NTA in the Ninth Circuit. Um, for the other circuits, it was really, um, there were cases that predated Pereira that held that the notice of hearing did stop time, but it's it's an open question, um, really, in the other circuits, what they're going to do um, with the recent um, BIA decision in, in Mendoza. Before we talk about sort of the opportunities and, and practice tips and strategies that you see uh, following these cases, are there any other cases that we wanted to, to touch on? Yeah, so I, there's one other case which I can jump in on. Um, okay, so that is sort of talking about the cancellation of removal, um, stop time rule issue. The most, the, the other interesting um, circuit court case that has come down in May um, is a Seventh Circuit decision, which is, again, dealing with the jurisdictional issue. Um, in that case, um, Ortiz-Santiago versus Barr, um, it's definitely a decision that is worth reading and, and thinking about. So in that case, again, the, the non-citizen was um, making an argument that because the notice to appear that he received did not contain um, all of the statutorily required information, um, that the court never acquired subject matter jurisdiction and that therefore the case should be, you know, uh, reopened and, and terminated. Um, in this case, the, the, the Seventh Circuit said, all right, let's look at what, what does jurisdiction mean? So it's a very sort of uh, 64,000 foot level decision. Um, and they say, look, jurisdiction means does the court itself have authority to hear a case? And clearly, so, you know, in the federal court context, that means, you know, is there a federal question or is there a diversity jurisdiction? Clearly, the immigration court has jurisdiction to hear removal cases. So it, 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 it um, sort of didn't bite at the notion that a defective NTA means no subject matter jurisdiction. And, and that's important because if there's not subject matter jurisdiction, then there's no statute of, of limitations on when you can raise the issue. You can raise it at any time, even after a final order. So Seventh Circuit says, no, we don't see this as a subject matter jurisdiction issue. But we also don't really entirely buy Bermuda's uh, quota because it's not just, uh, you know, the government can't simply ignore the statute, which requires it to have this type of information in the notice to appear. So the Seventh Circuit said, in fact, this is an issue that could lead to cases getting terminated, but because it's not subject matter jurisdiction, it's more of a claim processing uh, rule, meaning that the respondent in the case has to raise it in a timely manner, and if it's not raised, then it's waived. 
Um, in this case, the respondent argued um, that the reason they didn't raise the issue earlier on in the proceedings is because Pereira had not yet been decided. So they were arguing that this, you know, was sort of an intervening um, uh, change in the law, which should allow the the respondent to raise the case, uh, to raise the issue belatedly. Uh, the Seventh Circuit didn't agree with that in part because before the Pereira decision, there had been so much circuit litigation, um, and it was a circuit court split on the meaning of the notice to appear and what happens if it's defective, um, that the Seventh Circuit found, well, since there was at least one case from the Third Circuit, um, which had um, uh, found in favor of the non-citizen when the notice to appear was defective, this uh, litigant in the Seventh Circuit, Ortiz-Santiago, should have been on notice and should have raised the issue earlier on in the case. Um, it feels to me a little bit like a punt um, by the Seventh Circuit, that they're willing to really engage on the issue, but then in the end they, you know, by sort of saying that Ortiz-Santiago didn't raise it early enough and didn't show how he was really prejudiced, um, he in, his, in this situation um, isn't able to raise the case. Uh, I mean, sorry, raise the, raise the issue and, and um, potentially have the case um, terminated. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot to digest. I mean, for me, I, I think, you know, practitioners were, you know, right after Pereira last summer, people were doing motions to terminate in a lot of these cases. Then after Bermuda's Cota basically tied the hands of immigration judges, the question in the advocacy community has been sort of, well, do we still make this argument to preserve it for appeal, even knowing that the immigration judge can't grant it and the BIA can't grant it, so you're really just potentially preserving it for appeal um, before the circuit courts. Um, what this Seventh Circuit decision is saying is, yeah, if you think that you, you know, if you want to raise any sort of um, statutory argument that the NTA is not compliant with the INA and therefore the case should be terminated, you need to do that at the earliest opportunity or you're going to waive the right to make that argument. Um, so, you know, I think at the Seventh Circuit case at least raises the possibility that the federal courts um, are not going to buy Bermuda's Cota and that the plain language of Pereira v. Sessions, which says, you know, a notice to appear has to give somebody the notice of where and when to appear. It's like nothing could be clearer, like even though the legal issue before the Supreme Court in that case was quite narrow, and therefore the holding was narrow, the reasoning should be applied in other circumstances, um, including, you know, whether a case should be potentially terminated if, if the DHS isn't complying with the plain language of the statute. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the question is, uh, okay, so... This is a lot of information. Where are we now? What what arguments should advocates be making? Um, 
you know, I would say there's no downside to making an argument if the date and time in place are not in the notice to appear that the case should be terminated. The immigration judge is not going to terminate it, but you at least preserve that argument potentially for appeal. And by the time the case gets to the BIA, um, you know, we'll see where the other circuits have come out on the issue, um, you know, and if if it's raised, you know, at the earliest opportunity, sort of the first master calendar hearing, um, you know, I think that advocates can rely on Ortiz-Santiago, certainly within the Seventh Circuit, but elsewhere to say, you know, look, maybe this isn't subject matter jurisdiction. Maybe it is, but this is what Ortiz-Santiago held, and therefore we're raising this at the earliest opportunity. It just, you know, it gives you, it preserves for the respondent the opportunity to potentially, um, you know, raise the issue um, in a federal court appeal if if the case goes that far. Um, yeah, and certainly, so, I mean, that's the sort of big jurisdictional issue, and then, you know, pulling back out to the to the narrower um, stop time rule issue, I, I certainly think that, um, it, you know, people should be arguing that time does not stop, period, until a notice to appear that includes the information required under INA 239 is, is in the NTA. Uh, that's, you know, the clear intent of the Pereira decision. Um, it's the holding that the Ninth Circuit um, issued and that basically the the BIA decision in Mendoza-Hernandez is simply wrongly decided. Um, you know, for, for people where that's going to make a difference of whether they have the 10 years or not, you know, again, the immigration court and the board are going to be bound by Mendoza-Hernandez, but that certainly is an issue that um, should be preserved for appeal and I, I think has a likelihood of, of success in, in the circuit courts. Hmm. So if I understand your read on Ortiz-Santiago, it sounds like one of the maybe, you know, lessons for practitioners is that we should be making all sorts of arguments on um, the statute, on the precedent, um, not knowing, like, what the court may decide to explore or pull out, you know, as the relevant facts and arguments. Yeah, I think that I think that's certainly um, one lesson. And I mean, I honestly I think the Seventh Circuit is a little bit um, unfair to uh, Mr. Ortiz Santiago because under Seventh Circuit precedent, he he it, it didn't matter that the notice to appear was defective based on prior decisions. So the fact that the Seventh Circuit now is saying well, you know, he really should have been aware of this Third Circuit decision that went the other way, and therefore he should have raised the issue at the earliest opportunity. It feels a little, you know, disingenuous to me that that's really the the requirement um, to uh, to preserve the issue. Um, nonetheless, it does sort of, uh, you know, at least on, on this topic, which, you know, I think is likely to 
find its way back in one form or another to the Supreme Court in, in the next few years. Um, I think it is important to try to stay on top of what different circuits are are finding and to, you know, A, not assume that the decisions by the Board of Immigration Appeals are, are going to get deference from the circuits, particularly when Pereira um, specifically said this this section of the INA is not ambiguous. So now we have the BIA making some, you know, pretty big leaps in some of their reasoning, um, which I don't know if they're going to get deference based on, on the, on the Pradeta decision. Um, you know, I think for me, one of the big lessons of, of Pradeta from last summer was just, you know, most of the circuits had gone the other way other than than the third circuit and said yeah it's fine you know this two-step process is fine doesn't really matter as long as the person ultimately gets the information and you know the fact that you know um i think brave and and resilient advocates continued to litigate this issue all the way up to the supreme court um you know i think is an important lesson for all of us and to always look back at the statute because even if the board is made a particular decision which now feels etched in stone or even if you know the agency has issued regulations if it contradicts the statute like you've still got a strong argument in immigration uh sorry in the federal court especially if you can you know uh, hang your hat on that statutory argument and get out from under any kind of um agency difference yeah that's right and you know now more than ever when we have fewer tools and opportunities on behalf of our clients. Um, so before we wrap up, I'm wondering if there's any uh, clinic or other resources that you'd like to flag. And thank you so much for immersing yourself in this. It's dense and it's complex, and I appreciate that you've parsed it. Um, and wondering, like, what on clinic you've created or you're planning to create or what perhaps other national advocates have created that might help people understand. Yeah, thanks. Um, so we are last summer clinic and teamed up with the American Immigration Council to issue a practice advisory on Pereira. Um, we are in the process of updating it, given the you know sort of uh, number of decisions that have come out over the course of the last few weeks. So I'm not. I, hopefully, that will be out. I would say next month. Um, it is dense. So we want to make sure that we get everything. Um, correct. I, I, you know, I also just think there's been such an onslaught of negative immigration decisions um, over the past year that this does seem like an area where there really is ground to to fight back against the government. So I think it's important that, that we are all familiar with these issues and thinking about how um, making these arguments can, you know, provide defenses for our, our clients in a you know, increasingly um, adversarial uh, climate. Hmm. That's a good note to end on. Well, thank you so much to Vicki Nielsen. She is the Defending Vulnerable Populations Program Managing Attorney at Catholic Legal Immigration Network. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.